Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome back to The Indispensables. We've been on a short hiatus and we are back. Uh, my guest for this episode is Chief Master Sergeant Marty Pitt, retired from the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigations, a longtime client of mine back in the old days uh, and just a really fascinating guy. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, developing sources and uh, working sources from an intelligence and law enforcement standpoint. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Indispensables. Today I have an old friend and client. Some people call him Marty Pitt. You can call him Chief. Uh, this is a man who uh, served in federal service for 48 years. He served with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations for 38 years. His career includes unit and headquarters management, as well as executive level appointments. This guy, Chief Master Sergeant of the United States Air Force, an incredible guy. Chief Pitt, welcome to the Indispensables. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. And it's really a pleasure to hook up with you again and discuss some things. Yeah, it's been a long time. And so uh, we had the tremendous uh, uh, pleasure and I had the tremendous privilege and honor of uh, working with you back uh, many years ago. You've been retired. Uh, I'm amazed to say you told me for 12 years you've been retired. 12 years. That's correct, Bruce. Yeah. So does that mean that you began serving in the United States federal government 60 years ago? <laughs> yes, it does. Gee, willikers. Um, all right. Well, so maybe just for people, I mean, I bet a lot of our listeners don't even know what uh, AFOSI is, uh, but you didn't start at, uh, at the Office of Special Investigations. Where did you start back 60 years ago in, um, I guess that was 1962. Is that right? That's correct. I started uh, my Air Force career as an air policeman, and that didn't mean I was in the air flying around stopping jets. It meant I was on the ground guarding them. <laughs> that, that name was eventually changed as it is now to security police, which more aptly uh, identifies what they do. So I was there for about 10 years. I kind of moved up the ranks relatively fast in the uh, security police business. And thanks to a lot of good people, I was recognized for my abilities to somehow communicate and get my peers to move a little bit faster than perhaps others. And, and now, now, just for those who are not fresh on history, uh, when you joined up in 62, we were just getting involved in Vietnam, right? That is correct, yes. I actually spent one tour in the States and then uh, my whole outfit, the 355th fighter wing, went to Thailand in support of Vietnam. And for whatever reason, they dropped me off at Bangkok as a liaison guy. <laughs> and uh, I spent a year there during uh, the Vietnam crisis. Uh, you were just a young fellow, and then uh, and here you started working your way up. Oh, by the way, what what brought you into the Air Force? Was that uh, did you go in by choice or were you drafted? 
No, it was choice. I thought I had a football career. After spending a year on the bench at a junior college, I realized, well, maybe that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> so I looked around for something to do. And uh, quite frankly, I looked at all of the services, but the Air Force seemed to offer me the best path to uh, serve our country and, and grow as well. And, and so you were doing security police uh, for, from 62 to 72. And where did your tours take you? I started in Wichita, Kansas, and then I went to Bangkok, Thailand. From there, I went to Payne Field, which is gone now. It was in a small air base in Washington State. And then up to California, Oxnard, as Air Defense Command was folding up. So I seemed to be on all the bases that were folding up. <laughs> I finally ended up being approached by OSI at Oxnard Air Force Base. And they asked me if I wanted to join OSI, which is sort of the senior, not sort of, it is the senior investigative service for the Air Force, sort of like NCIS is for the Navy and MI and CID for the Army. Yeah. Isn't it funny that, isn't it funny we have to say NCIS now people know that because of television. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm not saying their program is true. I'm saying it's just... You You mean OSI isn't like a bunch of uh, uh, Dinozos walking around? <laughs> I'm sure we're not. No, no. Um, but, but yeah, so so people could understand. Um, you know, sometimes people would ask me like, well, why does the Air Force need an Office of Special Investigations? Can you help explain? Because it, it, it's not just counterintelligence work, right? It's, it's also um, investigative police work internal to the Air Force, right? It is. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we have several divisions. One is criminal investigation relative to Air Force members or those crimes affecting Air Force products or people. And then we have counterintelligence, which is trying to counter a foreign intelligence effort against the United States Air Force. And then related to the criminal mission is a fraud mission. Uh, we want to make sure we're not getting ripped off by major suppliers of aircraft or aircraft parts. So those are the three big parts. Criminal activity, major criminal activity related to the Air Force, fraud against the Air Force, and then counterintelligence, trying to keep the other side at bay, if you will. So uh, criminal, like if somebody's going to try to run off with, with, with a fighter plane, uh, then that would be a big theft. You would keep them from doing that. But I take it the fraud would be more like if my friends at uh, Northrop Grumman or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin uh, were to be uh, less than authentic or honest in their dealings with the Air Force, that might be, lead to a fraud investigation. Yes, it might. Uh, those are all reputable companies. Most of the fraud investigation has to do with subcontractors, to be honest. Okay. And so what would that look like? Well, a subcontractor might, I'm not a fraud expert, by the way, but a subcontractor might inflate prices. And then when we look at the bigger contracts from one of those companies you just mentioned, we might see where some subcontractor is perhaps buying foreign parts and selling them as originals made in America, if you will. Or it even goes beyond airplanes to perhaps a contractor comes on base and sells the Air Force on building a bunch of houses for the military. And then we find that those houses are substandard via using substandard parts, lumber, et cetera. That, that would also be a fraud. And then, of course, we have our internal frauds. Uh, every once in a while, somebody in the Air Force tries to take advantage of the system. And we're there to make them honest, if you will. 
Yeah. So just, uh, I mean, and, and, and for people who don't know, I mean, there's a lot of folks in the Air Force and it's a large, complex organization dealing with billions and billions of dollars and uh, lots of people who are uniformed and also uh, non-uniformed uh, Air Force personnel. Uh, so it's not like uh, the Air Force is 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 uh, uh, full of fraud. It's just that like any uh, large, complex organization, uh, you need to make sure that that fraud is policed. That's absolutely correct. We're just a group of people like any other group of people. We have uh, a whole lot of great people. And every once in a while, as they say, maybe a rotten apple. And, and what would what would a large crime look like? that uh, OSI would be involved in investigating a large crime. Obviously, the security police would take care of a, a drunken airman or something, right? So so what is OSI, what kind of large crimes? Yeah, we're talking about felony crimes by uh, any standard, uh, murders, major assaults, any type of crime that would, in the federal courts, be considered a felony that's where the security police and OSI sort of hand off things. If it, if it gets to be a felony offense, it goes to OSI. If it's not a felony fe offense, generally the, the security police will handle it. And then you mentioned the counterintelligence mission. I, I, I know that's something about which you, you are an expert. And uh, uh, you designed and implemented human dynamics programs uh, for joint Counterintelligence Academy, and and you were somebody who was teaching leadership and facilitating team building um, and human resources development. And I want to get into the actual work that you were doing. But for people who don't understand, uh, what what do those counterintelligence investigations look like? I guess the best way to explain it is that our adversaries, generally speaking, lag behind us in technology. So they have a core of people that are trained in the art of soliciting information from Air Force members and, and industrial and even college folks who have access to highly classified engineering information or, or other information uh, relevant to personnel. These folks can be themselves a spy or they can be handlers in other words, they're handling another person. They have maybe some blackmail on that person and they're forcing them to give classified information to the foreign adversary. Our job is to find that out and then where possible arrest those people responsible. And it goes further than that. We, we also have a responsibility to warn industry, Air Force members, obviously, and anyone else who handles classified information, that there's a danger out there. So a large part of that program is education. The covert part of it is being able to get people to talk to us who might have some, they, may, they might be on the periphery of something, but they have information that something is just not quite right with one of their coworkers. Our job is to encourage those folks to let us know so that we can investigate the suspicious incidents. Right. And the tricky part is being in sufficient dialogue with people, being able to interview people in a way that um, helps them realize what might be going on right in plain sight that they didn't realize, maybe. As an investigator, you would start to see, but I'm guessing that when you're being at your most effective, you're helping them start to realize that, hey, something's going on here. 
I, I think that's probably where I found my niche, to be honest. Long ago, I recognized that I was successful with my peers, but when I got in OSI, there was military, civilian, and officers, and NCOs of all ages. And my knack for getting people to do what I wanted them to do was slipping away. But then I began, after a briefing and, and a run-in with a very bright person, decided that this is about relationship formation and the heart of investigating, the heart of counterintelligence, the heart of fraud is getting people to trust you and provide you with information that may be of interest to the government. That can only happen through building an honest, straightforward relationship with another person. For years, I worked in the criminal area, narcotics primarily. And of course, we use informants. That's a tough job for somebody to be amongst their friends, yet talking to us. So it takes a very strong relationship or it's, it's just not going to work. Yeah. And you have to convince them uh, that, that you're the right person to trust. You have to convince them that you can protect them. You have to convince them to confide in you, right? And sometimes they have a change of heart and sometimes you have to use some coercion, I bet. In its essence, it's really about building the relationship with that person. It is, Bruce. And I would, I would offer that I, I know that we see on TV and, and I know other agencies use coercion. And I won't say we don't, but the gold standard is being able to create a relationship where they believe they're on the right side, as you put it, and they provide you information because they believe you're being very honest with them. It's that technique, I think, that elevated my career. I learned not only to do that with would-be informants, but I recognized through that wait a minute, this is important with my colleagues. This is important in life. The more I did it, the more results I got. And apparently my superiors were looking and they said, well, Marty's doing something right. Let's figure out what it is. <laughs> and eventually that's how I found my way into organizational development, and then finally leadership development. Would it be fair to say, like, you can't pretend to be likable, right? Or you can't pretend to be trustworthy. Maybe you can, but, but there's something about being someone other people want to talk to. And they start to see, especially if they're involved in something, some kind of wrongdoing, they can start to see you as a lifeline. I think you put that just right they have to come to the belief that you're on the right side and they want to be with you on that side. I know that there are a lot of people out there who use coercion and other tactics, and I'm not suggesting those don't work. I'm only suggesting that creating a trusting relationship for me has been the gold standard. And it takes time and it takes understanding first yourself, what your strengths and limitations are, and never forgetting what your mission is. But then you have to go to the other person and really start to examine who they are, what they care about, what their needs are, what they're afraid of, what they want to do. When people begin to understand you want to know about them, a relationship starts to take hold. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And just uh, to draw a bright line under this, when, when, when you're trying to cultivate informants, 
uh, one of the things I learned over the years um, is, gee, you have to try to build relationships with a whole bunch of people before you stumble onto an informant, right? That's that's very true. <laughs> it's a trial and error system where you might talk to a whole lot of people, maybe 10 or 20, and you'll only find one you've really connected with. and But that one sometimes brings uh, great results. Yeah, but like, so you might invest in 20 conversations and then you might find a couple people who might be susceptible and then, but it, it may be one of them susceptible, but they don't know anything. So you need one who, you need one who's, who knows what you need to know and who's also willing to start trusting you. What you just said is kind of the first step. You have to be in an area where people are likely to know something. And then from there, you start working through, you mentioned 20 people, that's fine. You start working through that 20 until you find someone who not only knows what they're doing, what's going on, but is willing to provide that information to you. Yeah, and if uh, and and so, uh, man, what a tightrope walk that is! And and how long were you doing that in criminal investigations in narcotics? How long did you play that role? About ten years. Near the 10, 10 year mark, I was actually training other people how to operate in that world and create sources and undercover operations and what have you. And uh, Dr. Jim Watkins, who at that time was organizational development heard me at a at a source course, an informant course. Maybe about three weeks later, I got an invitation to come to headquarters. Now, that's not something an operational guy really wants to do. But I, I turned him down very nicely, only to find that I was receiving orders about three months later. So one of the great things about the Air Force is uh, uh, if they decide that's where you're going, then then you get an order eventually. Right? That's, well, a good point there is, I guess I've been reluctant to move on from things that I'm being successful with. But good leaders see that and say, look, that's getting too easy for old Marty. We have to give him another challenge. And sometimes I didn't like that, but them, they kept pushing me. And each new challenge was broadening my career and, quite frankly, my excitement for the Air Force and OSI. Yeah. And so there's two things I want to draw a bright line under uh, before we, we, we keep going. One is you said it already that you were so good at this, developing informants, developing sources, that you began teaching other people to do this as well. So talk a little bit about that, about the uh, because that's that seems like um, maybe you're a little bit out of the line of fire, because let's not forget, for those who are not keeping this in mind, Developing informants, either in a criminal uh, enterprise or developing informants, especially in a counterintelligence setting, is dangerous. But but I'm really interested in, you know, what's it like to start teaching people how to do this? That was tough initially. I have to admit that what I initially did was sort of tell people what I did. Well, that doesn't go a whole long ways if they're different than me. That's, I think, a turning point where I started recognizing, wait a minute, I need to find out where they're at, where their head's at, where their experience is at, who are they? And then we'll have a conversation as opposed to a lecture about the course. The more I did that, the more effective I became. And quite frankly, the less lecture that I gave, those courses turned into a conversation about them and what they're experiencing in the field. And of course, I would add from my own experiences. And again, 
perhaps shouldn't keep going back to this, but the key to undercover courses, counterintelligence courses, source or, or informant handling courses for me was not only teaching them how to create relationships, but creating a relationship with the students. People who go into OSI seem to be, we seem to have a fairly high ego. Along with that comes sort of a, who are you to tell me? Because I've already been successful. I, you know, okay, tell me about your success. And that starts a dialogue and all of a sudden they're involved because they're telling their story. Again, that's starting to create trust. And you ask them if you ever made a mistake and I'll, they'll say, well, yeah, I did here. And, and I'll say, you know, I made that same mistake. Well, all of a sudden this is coming together and we're starting to confide in one another in a real way, not in some artificial way. I'm focused on them and sooner or later they become kind of focused on me and what I'm saying. And there's the win. Yeah. And it's uh, um, I'm glad you're, you're emphasizing that uh, because your personality is unusual and you have a you just have a way with people. So that's a great head start if you're in the relationship business, right? If you're good with people, whereas some of the guys who go into OSI are pretty tough nuts, right? They want to be a special agent and they don't realize that, hey, if you're too tough, you're not going to win people over and you're going to be beating them over the head instead of sitting down over um, a hamburger. You know, sitting down over a hamburger might be a better way to win this person over. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And let's not forget OSI is within a military context. There was a time when the military was about telling. I outrank you, so here's the story. Here's what you're going to do. I think that's changing throughout the Air Force. In fact, I'm sure it is. But I know it has changed in OSI. It's more about sharing and understanding one another without regard to rank. I, I probably didn't say this, but OSI agents don't show their rank to the public, but within the organization, we know who you are, <laughs> but we don't rely on it. We rely on the relationship. We rely on experience. We rely on what we know about you and OSI isn't very large. So we tend to know about one another. Rank sort of is put to the side and expertise and, you know, is this a person I can trust? He'll give me good advice. That sort of takes over. That's the playing field we're on. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is uh, secret information, but I don't think it is. How many people are in OSI? Is that a secret? I don't know. So I won't say exactly, but probably not more than 2,000 and more closer to 1,000. Yeah. Okay. Well said, sir. Well, I <laughs> call you sir. well said, chief. Uh, uh, you may have been one of the early NCOs who said, don't call me, sir. I'm a chief. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and, and just again, to thread the needle, something else I want to uh, 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 draw a bright line under is, okay, so the other part of the mission in this, uh, in OSI is counterintelligence. So in, in those cases, it's similar, right? In terms of trying to develop sources, trying to develop informants, trying to figure out what's going on. Although um, I'm really glad you pointed out that, I mean, look, you're not going to try to warn somebody, hey, you probably shouldn't be dealing narcotics around here, right? I mean, if they, they know that's wrong. Uh, whereas somebody who's working at a nuclear weapons research laboratory or somebody who's working at a classified Air Force facility might not realize that they're being preyed upon by our nation state adversaries. 
Uh, and so a lot of it is teaching them what to look for, what to expect. Is that, is that much more so than in the criminal context? Yes, it is. And frankly, it's more dangerous in that you're dealing with, generally speaking, fairly high-level people who work in a classified facility and pretty much presume that everybody in that facility believes as they do and wouldn't dare leak secrets. It was very difficult to approach somebody and say, I know that you know most of these people and they're good people, but sometimes good people do bad things. And you have that kind of dialogue with them and it kind of let them know what the signs are of somebody who's not quite right. Yeah, or sometimes good people do bad things. Sometimes people are not what they appear. That That's very true. And oftentimes, there's two big sets, I think, that at least I've seen. And one is they have a hidden value in perhaps a country that they came from long ago, or their parents did. And the other, of course, is somebody has something over them. They've, they've done something, and it's come to the attention of one of our enemies, and they're holding that over them. And if you don't provide this information, I'm going to make this public, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because some of the things that used to be used for blackmail uh, because of where society was on certain kinds of issues, uh, I think people are less susceptible to blackmail now, at least on some things. Well, the first time it was explained to me that there are good national security reasons for uh, removing certain kinds of taboos because it makes people less susceptible to blackmail, I thought, huh, that's a head scratcher. Never would have thought of that one. No, that's, that's very important, actually. Because we had many taboos early on, we gave the enemy many opportunities to hold things over people. And as those taboos, as you call them, kind of dissipated, they have less and less opportunity. At that point, uh, perhaps criminal behavior might might enter the game, money might enter the game, or again, uh, an allegiance to another country that was unknown to anybody and didn't show up in an investigation of a background. And, and, and so uh, because criminal behavior is a very strong point of vulnerability, sometimes I guess the criminal area and the counterintelligence area might intersect, right? Because if somebody is, is engaged in criminal activity, that also might make them a target for foreign intelligence uh, who might use that to expose them. No, no question about it. And uh, that, an easy one that I think everybody can probably relate to is somebody has a gambling habit and they have a bad stretch. They lose a lot of money, more money than they have. Sure, sure enough, somebody shows up with an offer to pay off their debts, but there's another price. They want some information and they're into the trap. Good people fall into those traps. Yeah, good, uh, good. Right. That's what's so painful, right, is that it's not always uh, an evildoer. It might be somebody who, because of their own weaknesses, they've made themselves susceptible and then they find themselves engaged in compromising the national security of this great country to which they've sworn an oath. That's probably more prevalent than any other reason. It's it's good people getting caught in bad situations because of their own bad behavior, but they probably never thought of it in that way. They never expected to be pressured to provide information against the government. Once you 
start down a path and that path becomes uh, more than you can deal with, you're vulnerable. When you're vulnerable, somebody's going to figure that out and somebody's going to try to exploit it. Yeah, right. And, and, and then uh, the consequences can be, can be uh, horrific. A lot of these, um, these subtleties, these nuances uh, are what you were teaching uh, counterintelligence folks in your human dynamics program that you designed. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh-huh. And so what, what's that like to, to, to be uh, tasked with uh, developing and designing a human dynamics program to teach counterintelligence officers? It's not so different than dealing with informants, although you have to raise your game. The people you're going to be dealing with have their own careers to worry about, and generally they're of a fairly high level. You have a responsibility not to place them in danger of losing their career, if you will, at the same time getting the information that, that's going to help the country. It's dicey, and it's um, very nerve-wracking at times because you, you began to understand the pain of perhaps a person who's giving you information as well as the dangers and you're always kind of second guessing yourself is this going to be too much for this person are they going to crack and and do something crazy you have to be aware of the stress that they're feeling to do that of course you have to know who they are and and that's a big part of it again it's just you just have to know who they are and who you're dealing with and where their where their break point is and how do you develop uh, techniques that you can teach others? Because, you know, so much of it is instinct. So much of it is being able to read people. So much of it is getting people to, to confide in you. How do you, how did you go about sort of taking that all apart so you could teach it? We have a model that we use to build relationships in OSI. It really starts with casual conversations and finding some mutual ground to talk about and walk on. And eventually, as that conversation moves forward, if you'll think about this as a circle going around, somebody, either you, will take a risk with the person you're talking about, or they may take a risk with you, whoever. It doesn't matter as long as the risk is is wisely received and appreciated. And as that risking moves back and forth, something called trust begins to build up. As trust begins to build up, more risk-taking builds more trust and on to kind of through a circle, whereas they're willing to tell you just about anything because they believe in you and you, you believe in them. Doing that, you also have to remember, and this is the hard part, who you are, what your mission is. And you can't totally become them. You have to be you understanding them. So we teach that and we talk about that and we talk about being able to read people because as you know, people behave differently based on age, based on their own experiences, where they grew up, what their life has been like. And you have to find them where that's at. I should say where they're at. Once you find out where they're at, you can begin to build a relationship. But it's important to to sort of go slow, if you will, so that in the end you can go fast. Uh, Because once the relationship is built, things start to flow. But if you try to go too fast, 
first of all, you, you, you're, you're, you're probably putting the relationship in danger because of stress. The other person's starting to think, wow, I'm really getting pushed here. Uh, I'm not sure I want to be here. So if you start trading risk too fast, then they might start to feel like, wait a minute, you're backing me into a corner. Yeah. And, and I think it's important not to be artificial. People have a way of understanding when they're being had. And uh, they, they can tell, oh, this guy's just saying this because he wants something from me. So that relationship has to be real. It has to be real. The danger therein lies, you can get sucked into the relationship so far, you might overlook some things that your informant is doing. Right. So, so if the more you're starting to mirror someone and then you start to trade risk and you start to build this upward cycle of trust, and then all of a sudden you start having an investment in your informant. And so you might start giving them the wrong benefits of the wrong doubts and you might start overlooking things. You might even start doing things to try to protect them a little bit. Indeed. All of that happens. Indeed. Uh, I, I've seen that happen more times than I want to count where the friendship becomes a friendship, not a professional relationship. And therein lies the problem because you just have to remember your mission, why you're talking to the person, understand them, but you cannot forget who you are and what you're about. Right. You better not fall in love. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, uh, so, okay. So just to be clear, you were so good at this. Uh, that they started having you be the one to teach counterintelligence agents and counterintelligence officers how to do this stuff. Because at Joint Counterintelligence Academy, uh, you had people from the different military services, people from the intelligence services, right? The people who were all working together, FBI counterintelligence, right? So you're, you're, you're teaching, you, you're so good at this, you're teaching them. Uh, and then you're facilitating team building, uh, interventions, you're, you're teaching leadership development. And for how long were you the guy who was in charge of developing leaders in this incredibly prestigious, sensitive organization that has so much responsibility for keeping America safe? I, was, I would say 10 years, but I, the first part of that, I was actually the number two guy in the office and under the study of Dr. Jim Watkins. And uh, then he retired and it fell upon me to, to move forward. And uh, we did that. Boy, this is, this is becoming redundant. But the way a chief or even I, I, I moved on from chief to become a civilian, but those colonels and generals and senior officers all recognized that they outranked me and they didn't have to listen to me. So the challenge became, how do I talk to a leader about leadership? It again boiled down to, okay, here's what's going on. I've talked to a lot of people in your command. What do you think is, is the answer here? Where, where's the problem? Oh, eight times out of 10, all of a sudden they're telling me, what I was about to tell them. But when it comes from then, of course, it's their idea. They're more willing to implement those ideas because perhaps I had some part in drawing them out, but there are, there, there are their ideas. 
Yeah, that's so, so interesting that you say that, though, because, man, that, that, that requires letting go of ego. It requires not uh, being being OK with not being the hero in the conversation. And uh, uh, you kind of have a little secret with yourself, which is I just led you to the solution. You could pat yourself on the back, but then you have to hope somebody else is noticing that you're doing that. If they succeed. Of course, I succeed because the, the commanding general sent me out there to, to fix an issue. And if they fix the issue, uh, my pat on the back comes from the, the commander of the mission. And uh, so uh, I, I've never worried about that. You know, seeing somebody succeed and knowing that you had some small part to play, that's pretty cool stuff. And it keeps you going. Uh, I, I I hear you, and I I share that. But uh, but it but it does require uh, letting go of your ego a little bit. I I always think of advising CEOs, and you know, I'll, I'll and and then they'll tell me, well, this is my brainchild, and I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that was my idea. <laughs> you know, um, but but in in your role, so uh, the uh, OSI has a brigadier general. Right. And then uh, and then the the unit uh, commanders were colonels. Right. Um, so there was a bunch of colonels. Um, how many colonels w- would be in that command structure? Well, th- there's the general, of course. And uh, at the headquarters, there's probably about five or six colonels running around. But each they call them regions now. They used to call them uh, districts. But the regions, I think there's about 14. Each one of those is headed by a colonel. And then underneath those colonels are detachments anywhere from five to 15 that are led by lieutenant colonels, majors, and captains, generally speaking. So there's a lot of leadership to deal with in OSI at various levels. Right. And luckily, the ones who are uniform know that, you know, if, if you're a chief master sergeant, uh, I may outrank you, but not really. <laughs> but but so but but to your point, how do how how do you do that? How do you other than making it their idea? Is it just that you have this great reputation? You have this great way of, of building influence and maintaining influence. Uh, why is it that they have so much uh, confidence in you? Or how do you win their confidence? That's a good question. And I think the answer is I sort of saddle up with them where there's an issue I've been sent by the command and they know why I'm coming and they're skeptical. You know, why is the command picking on me? My first move is to say, hey, I'm out here, boss, but let's see if we can't figure this thing out. Uh, You know, I'm not sure why things have went wrong, but here's some things I can do for you if you're willing. And then we'll see how how that comes out and we'll talk about it. So it's not about trying to teach leadership. It's about saddling up next to them and trying to find our way through the issues together. Yeah. And, and, and in that collaboration, they start to see results then uh, and they, they can feel the influence you're having on them. They start to believe maybe. Exactly. Exactly. I always I check back with them from time to time to make sure all's going well. I also, in most cases, champion their cause to the commander. I say, hey, we, we got this right. It's, it's going to work out. You know, 
Hang in there. Let's see what happens. So this is extraordinary. So what, um, by the way, for uh, uh, I want to make sure that we don't get all the way through this interview. And I do not uh, mention uh, that Chief Pitt was inducted into the Air Force Office of Special Investigations Hall of Fame. Uh, the induction was was 2019. Right. But you're uh, uh, but but the formal ceremony is going to be soon. Right. Because we had the pandemic. That's correct. The uh, it's been canceled twice uh, because of the pandemic, and uh, it's going to be held next year, which is an anniversary date for OSI at the OSI headquarters on Quantico. I, I need to say something, and it, I don't know. I just need to get this off my chest a little bit. It's great. There's been forty, <clears throat> excuse me, forty-six people since 1946. Interestingly enough, when we were formed, who've been selected to the Hall of Fame. But you know, Bruce. It's really not about me. It's about a whole generation of support people and agents who allowed me to excel. I guess what I'm trying to say is I hope in my selection, my whole generation of workmates understand that we have been recognized, that what we did was important. The fact that that's what you have to say speaks volumes about who you are, how you are, and why in 76 years you are one of only 46 people to be inducted into the OSI Hall of Fame. It is because of the way you lift people up, the way that you share credit, the way that you let go of your ego. You are a great American and all that you have done to keep America strong and the world safe uh, I am so grateful to you on behalf of myself and my family and the rest of my countrymen. If only people knew the role you have played and the way you have kept people safe. Um, it is such a privilege to know you. It has been such a privilege and an honor to work with you. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Bruce. But I would also say if it wasn't for people like you, and uh, I don't want to get into some kind of an exchange here, but you gave us great insight. Perhaps you'll recall the operation down at the Special Ops Command, where I kind of went down initially, and they said, well, Marty, you're pretty good, but why don't you bring on this guy that you're showing his films of, because he's really good. <laughs> Again, you know, it's one of those, it's a group effort. It's not about one person. Chief Master Sergeant Martin L. Pitt, uh, Marty to some people. Uh, Marty Pitt, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's my pleasure. In our next episode, I talked with Dave Christensen, uh, the longtime CEO of MKC, a billion-dollar agricultural co-op, um, and uh, he's just an incredibly wise and interesting and kind human being. Uh, I consider him uh, not just a longtime client, um, but a friend and a mentor. Uh, I think you'll love the episode. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.